All right, everyone, welcome back to an episode of Forward Marginal Guidance, which is the mashup uh, that we call it when Jack and I do a podcast together. And we've got a friend of Blockworks and multiple uh, longtime guests on both of our shows, Jim Bianco. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I thought it was supposed to be marginal forward guidance I was on, but uh, apparently I'm on a different. I'm on the wrong show, right? Uh, yeah, there's been a little bit of a mix-up. I'm so sorry for this. Uh, you'll just have to make do with the two of us. Well, maybe okay. it should be marginal guidance because there wasn't a you know the margin should come first because there wasn't a ton of forward guidance on at the on display at the presser. I have to say. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. I think you know uh, this was one of the stranger pressers that I've seen Paul do, not because the market's up or down. But because mm. the message that he portrayed today was so much different than the message he was trying to portray in December and in November, and he's got now a big inconsistency in there. Mm. Uh, and so I think that this is the market has glommed on to this, that this inconsistency, that this means they're going to hike two more times. They're done. They're going to cut rates. You know, it's back to 21. Let's 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 log off this podcast and get back on Reddit and let's go all YOLO into meme stocks and buy monkey JPEGs. Here we go. We're going to just rerun 21 all over again. That's kind of where the market is right now. I suspect Japal is probably now back there looking at his iPhone and, and saying, all right, get me on get me on um, on some speaker panel next week. I got to go walk this back. And mm -hmm. so we'll have to see if that's indeed where he goes with this. So so I, I know uh, Jack's got a bunch of specific questions for you. We've got a chart deck that we're going to run through in a couple of minutes. But Jim, can you just mm -hmm. give us, you know, sort of your, it, that was your kind of high level take, right? So that was a very surprising presser for you. What were some of the things Powell said specifically that stuck out with you? He was given the opportunity to push back on easing financial conditions. And he largely didn't. He hmm. he thinks that, or at least he was trying to emphasize, we're going to go to five and five and a quarter. Well, the market's got you priced in at 475 to five, but you want to go to five to five and a quarter. If you think that you being Jay Powell, think that that's going to rein in financial conditions, that's not going to rein in financial conditions. Because they what the market heard was, Ah, eh, two, two more, one rate hike, maybe two more rate hikes, and you're done. One or two doesn't matter. You're done, and then when you're done, you're done for good, Jay. We then start the parlor game, and when the first cut comes, and he didn't, I don't think, kind of got that in that he like like focused on that. Excuse me, let me say it this way: he focused on that. We're going to go one, two more times, and we're done. And he didn't focus on this idea that. Easing financial conditions is a bedrock to reigning in or, or creating inflation. That if we let the stock market run the 4,500 or 4,800, the old high, we let interest rates fall a lot, that we're going to create more inflation. That has been the message for over a year from the Fed. And when given opportunities to reiterate that message, I don't want the market to go up. In other words, this was kind of the opposite of what we got at Jackson Hole. In August, he was an eight-minute speech. He was very clear that I'm going to stick it to the markets. And I'm going to stick it hard to the markets. And they really responded by falling 10% in nine days. He had the opportunity to do that again and kind of was expected to do some of that. He did none of it. And that's why I think you're seeing such a positive reaction on the market. Now, that's fine if that's what he wants. 
But this is not the message he was portraying in December and in November, let alone September's presser and, and the like. So this is a bit of a different message. And we'll see whether or not, you know, in speeches next week that they try to push back on this. Mm. So I'm just looking, you know, to, to support some of what you're saying here. So Bitcoin is trading at about $23,500. It's about, up about 2%. Uh, the NASDAQ is basically looks looks pretty similar. You know, I guess just to ask the, you know, the the counter question to that, Jim, do you think there's a reason why, like, what's your what's your thought on why uh, Jay Powell changed his stance? Like, is it possible that uh, he's seen something in the data that's actually, you know, spooked him? You know, I definitely heard him say, look, we, we do not want to be easing off too soon. There's a risk, right, kind of pointing back again to the 1970s and 1980s there of Volcker, where there's a risk in easing too soon. So we definitely highlighted that uh, to the markets. Do you think he possibly saw something, you know, in, in the data that might have spooked him? And that's why he's changing his tune just a bit. Maybe I don't know if I'd use the word spooked. Maybe it was that he saw something in the data that gave him hope because mm. he emphasized a couple of times that we can rein in inflation all the way back to 2%. No one has to lose their job and we don't have to have a recession. Um, although he has been said before that there was supposed to be some pain involved in this. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, what happened to the pain, Jay? Where did the pain go? And that's kind of the hope that I think he saw. And, you know, I, but he tried to offset that by saying, we're going to go to five and we're going to stay at five. And I don't see a reason to cut rates. Uh, and he, that's not the way the market heard, heard it. The market heard, you're going to go to five and you're going to stop. The market, remember, the market's belief largely is that the economy is going to turn south in the next three to six months. Things are going to get bad. People are going to lose their jobs. GDP is going to go negative. That's the consensus forecast for the first and second quarter is negative GDP, that there's going to be a 1% rise in the unemployment rate. That's a huge rise in the unemployment rate by the end of the year. So the market's thinking when Jay says we're going to go to five and stop, and then he says, you know, you know, no one's lost their job and the economy seems to be okay and we might achieve 2% without 2% inflation without pain, then what the market's hearing is you're going to stop then you're going to see that all the data is going to go bad and then you're going to be forced to cut rates. And then we could just, you know, we could just dust off the 2021 playbook and we could rerun that all over again. Maybe we could get GameStop back to 500 while we're at it too. And Jim, that's definitely what the bond market is saying uh, with, you know, seven or eight uh, rate cuts being priced out to the end of 2024. But do you think the right. stock market is also pricing in uh, as severe of a slowdown in the economy, as you say, uh, you know, given that earnings forecasts are where they are and the stock market is on, a, is on a roar? No, not really. Because if you look at the valuations in the stock market, they're about, you know, let's look at Wall Street's favorite metrics, like the forward P.E. ratio. That's the, what does Wall Street think the 12-month earnings rate is going to be divided by the price? And keeping in mind that they're always wrong on the 12-month earnings rate anyway, but that's how they do it. It's about average valuation is what it is. It's not cheap. It's not expensive. But if you're going to buy average valuation ahead of a forecast of a recession, you're paying too much for the stock market. So I think what the stock market has got in, in its mind is it's going to be kind of a soft landing or a fake slowdown. It's going to slow down enough to get the Fed to back off on uh, rates and to pivot, but then we'll reaccelerate in the second half of the year. Um, so they've got this you know, soft landing kind of idea. The bond market, you're right. 
um, the bond market has either got a combination of we're going back to 2% on the inflation rate or and or there's going to be a more severe slowdown. So they're a little bit at odds with each other. And I want to say a little bit because there's been in the past where they've been way at odds with each other. So they're really kind of in the same direction, just mattering about degree right now. Yeah, well, I would say it's definitely a good day um, for Mike because Mike's been uh, you know talking about all this, you know, Mike's nickname around the office is actually soft landing. We all call him soft landing because he's, uh, he's a believer in the soft landing. Inflation will fall. Economic economy will stay strong. And so it's very good day for, for Mike. Uh, me, you know, I'm, I'm having, he gets, he gets the Blackworks Lambo then. Okay. He gets the Blackworks Lambo. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Me, I, is it it neon green? Is it neon green or purple? (laughs) I've been slowly embezzling to get myself a little something nice. Yes. Oh, I wouldn't even embezzle. I just put it right on the, uh, right on the accounting line. Blackworks Lambo. Just right there. Got to look right under, right under salaries. It's a sales expense. Purple's on brand. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Somehow. Uh, I have to say, Jim, this meeting that just occurred probably took me by surprise more than any meeting last year. I was expecting more of the same. I was expecting Powell to say we were going to hike higher. We're going to hike longer. Uh, There is no ceiling, basically, until, you know, we say it's over. There's going to and no, no, no rates cuts until the end of the year, until well after the end of the year. Uh, I think my error was that. he he would pay more attention to financial conditions than to the slowdown in inflation. Uh, since October, it's not I mean, your error; it's a lot of people's error, yeah. and that's why that's why you've got a one in one point eight percent rally in the S and P going right now as we're talking. So a lot of people were thinking he was going to push back on financial conditions, and he largely didn't. Right. So uh, in the minutes of the December Fed meeting, the the officials said that the easing of financial conditions was unwarranted. They use that word. And the right. financial conditions, yeah, it measures the stock market, credit spreads, the dollar, in addition to uh, the level of risk-free interest rates, which the Federal Reserve controls. So because the dollar's been going down, much the stock market's been going up. Yeah, credit and spreads have been narrowing. Now. Yeah. So, so they're much easier now. So I, I thought that Powell would come out swinging. He did not. And he even said that financial conditions did not change since the December FOMC meeting, which in my opinion, and, you know, as a professional, you know, Jim, I'm curious in, in your opinion, I think they have. If you look at the stock market's gone up, credit spreads have oh, narrowed. Of course they have. Yeah. Of yeah. course they have. The stock market's <laughs> gone up. Bond yields have gone down. Of course they've gone up uh, or eased. You know, that you know, the markets have, have gone higher since the December meeting. So, yeah, no, it wasn't just your error. It was everybody's error. That was the big elephant in the room, was that we were going to see him do like he did at Jackson Hole. But he didn't. He didn't, and that was the surprise. And that's why you're seeing the markets go the way they are. And by the way, let me back up a second and talk a little bit about the composition of this rally. Mm. Um, If you break down the S&P and you look at some of the sectors and some of the stocks, this is 2021 all over again. Half the gain, the stock market's up about 7.5% this year, and it's only February 1st. Half the gain is eight stocks. It's the FANG stocks plus NVIDIA, Tesla, in Microsoft. I mean, that's that's 2021 stuff all over again. Uh, you know that you're seeing you're seeing the you're seeing the uh, crypto space start to move. And the shittier the coin, the better it's doing. You know, like look how much Solana is up relative to how much. Uh, yes, and I am saying the shittier the coin, the better it's doing relative to Bitcoin or Ethereum. 
Uh, so this is 2021 all over again. So you've got all the races. Look how much ARC is up. ARC, I think, had either its second or first best month ever in January. Tesla was up 40%. Coinbase was up 65% in the month of January alone. This is not the Caterpillars and the GMs and the Procter and Gambles powering ahead because we're going to have a soft landing. This is, like I said, monkey JPEGs and everything else is starting to move. This is mm. 21 all over again. So when he talks about reigning in financial conditions, I mean, you know, we might single-handedly save Robinhood at the point we're going right now that everybody's going to be putting their money back in the Robinhood. Uh, this, is, this is what he wants. He has rallied against this all year. Like I said, I'm trying to be agnostic about it. I, I don't care what he wants. I'm just saying he was inconsistent today relative to what we've seen from him in prior meetings. And that's why you're seeing such a big reaction because the inconsistency was much more bullish. Absolutely right. The higher beta stocks are doing the best. Uh, Carvana, as you said, comes to mind. The home builders, mm -hmm. for in, which in my opinion, the fundamentals remain very challenging, are rallying like crazy, even though some of them have cancellations rates uh, above 50%. So 100%, Jim. Uh, Mike? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, you know, one thing that I'd love to get your perspective on here, Jim, is sort of the liquidity picture. Uh, so, you know, we're actually having Mike, Michael Howell on the show to talk about this in a little bit more depth next week, but you know, he's the right thing, guy to talk about it with. Yeah. One, one thing that I, one thing that I noticed is, you know, th this is something I'll, I'll, I'll raise my hand and say, I don't fully understand this relationship, but I noticed he talked about the, uh, the treasury general account and he noticed that, uh, the treasury was drawing that down and that was going to continue to happen. I know that's because of the, the debt ceiling. Um, but I, I'll be honest, I'm not 100% sure why that is. I know when, you know, mm -hmm. Treasury general account goes down, that's liquidity up. And that might explain, in, in at least in part, some of this rally. So, but he also mentioned, you know, there's still a lot of liquidity stuck in the reverse repo facility that might offset that. So I'd love to sort of get your, your thoughts on what does the liquidity picture look like and how much is that driving this current rally? Well, let me just explain real quick what you, the Treasury general account is the treasury's checking account. It's what mm. they use to pay their bills, but it's not like your checking account or my checking account. It's got $400 billion in it. Um, maybe, maybe I don't know, Mike's over there embezzling. Maybe his I mean, that purple has, Lambo, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He might have $400 billion in his checking account for all we know uh, at, at this point. But so that money is considered to be not in the financial system, but it exists. So as they draw it down and they pay bills with it, they put it back into the financial system and that becomes a source of liquidity. The reverse repo facility is kind of the same thing. It is, except it's a little more nuanced. It's not part of the banking system. Almost all reverse repo is held by money market funds. It's not held by banks. So if the reverse repo facility starts to go down, presumably that liquidity goes back into the banking system. So that's how this is. You draw these things down and it's more liquidity. That sounds weird, but it's only because they're not part of the banking system. And as you bring that money, as you draw it down, you're bringing it back in. So with that said, the liquidity, system, the liquidity situation in the markets has been poor. But you've got all this potential liquidity sitting out there, the TGA being drawn down, because of the debt ceiling. Why is that real quick? The treasury can't borrow anymore. They've got a limit of $31.8 trillion. That's all they can borrow. They, they can issue new debt, but they can't issue net new, they can't issue, issue net new debt. So if they have $10 billion worth of treasuries 
maturing, they can issue another $10 billion treasury and they still have the same overall level. They can't issue $11 billion. So they can't go above that to continue to fund an ever expanding government. So they're drawing down the TGA for now to try and do what's called extraordinary means to try and push the debt ceiling uh, drop debt date out to June. So the liquidity is poor, but you've got all this potential liquidity that could come into the market. And that's what's got everybody not worried about liquidity right now is that, yes, you know, um, I'm parched, but there's a big jug of water on the bench, on the table right here, and I can walk over there and drink it at any time I want. That would be the potential liquidity. Got it. Um, you, know, you know, another, again, this, this wasn't something that Chair Powell mentioned, but, you know, I'd be curious to sort of get your take because this is one of the sort of narratives that has been at the, at the fore, but is now, or in, in the background, but is now rising to the fore, which is the reopening of China, uh, which is widely being interpreted as bullish. You know, when I think about that, though, you know, inflation, at least in my mind, right, it's a, it's a mismatch of supply and demand, right? And we struggle with that uh, quite a bit. So when I think about the, the China reopening, I actually wonder if, you know, I think it, I see it as being a massive deflationary force, right? Because it's bringing an enormous amount of supply online. Uh, and, and I do wonder if that factors at all into the way the Fed or Powell is is thinking. Uh, because, you know, he sort of mentioned again in this presser that we saw, you know, some aspects of CTI, CPI, they're starting to be disinflationary, specifically was the word that he used. There were other uh, more sticky components. And he, he, he called out... Um, one particular bit, which I, I want to get your take on in a bit, Jim. But, you know, my, my question might be, do you think, you know, on the horizon, Powell is kind of thinking about this, this China reopening, and that might be in some way impacting his, the, you know, monetary conditions over here? It, I think it is. I think that some Fed officials have mentioned about the China reopening. But the China reopening is a very complicated subject. It is not straightforward. Let me, first of all, mentioned that if you look at the statistics, Wall Street, and I'm going to use the technical term here, is urinating on themselves. They're so excited about the China opening <laughs> that the Bank of America survey has got the most bullishness in 16 years over China. The, the hedge, uh, Goldman Sachs' prime brokerage account, which services hedge funds, shows a massive amount of Chinese stock buying by uh, hedge funds over the last month or so since the Chinese uh, uh, reopening has been announced. So everybody's full in, full bullish on this whole idea that there's going to be this massive leap forward in economic activity in China. That is the consensus view right now. So what do we know about consensus views? It won't be that. Um, you know, so it, it, but that said, it could be much greater or it could be much less or it could be something a little bit different. And here's the problem. I guess it really comes down to the big picture that I've been talking about for on nearly two years now. We shut down the economy. We reopened the economy. Is that it? We just shut it down. We reopened it. And now we're going to return to 2019. And it's all going to be like it used to be. Or in that process, have we fundamentally changed things? And we're and at the, the shorthand I look at is we're never going back to 2019. The example I've used time and again is the, the shutdown and the reopening had a tectonic event on the, on the Western economies. It ended the five-day work week in the office. I know there's a bunch of boomers that think it's temporary. Yeah, go ahead. Keep thinking that. It's over. 
We are now in a hybrid world, and we can argue whether it's four days in the office or four days at home, but we're in a hybrid world, the five-day office work week, except for the poor slobs at Goldman Sachs and some at J.P. Morgan. It's gone. It's, it's over with, and we're going to continue to move further away from it over the next several years. That's a big change. In other words, the, the economy is fundamentally different now than it was in 2019. Different does not mean dystopian. Uh, it means different. It could be better in some respects. It could be worse in other respects. What about China? China ended zero COVID. Is it going to... Wall Street's bullishness is after being locked in their apartments for three years, the Chinese are dutifully going to salute C for sh <laughs> shutting down zero COVID. They're going to go right back to iPhone City for that 12-hour shift where they peel things off and turn screws and make our iPhone 14s and pretend like nothing has changed. That's mm. what all the bullishness is about. Nothing has changed. They're going right. In fact, you hear a lot of them say it's going to be just like 2019. Is it or are, is, there, is there going to be a difference? We saw this with our economy. We had a big surge in 21, and then we fell apart in the first half of 22 with two negative GDP numbers in the first and second quarter of 22. I suspect that this reopening from China is not going to go the way people think. Does that mean it's going to be worse, or does that mean it's going to be better? We'll see which way it plays out. Finally, what's it supposed to mean for us, as opposed to, like, if you're not buying Chinese stocks, uh, what does it mean for us? It's supposed to be a big demand on raw materials. We're supposed to be see copper and aluminum and crude oil and the rest of those because China's the manufacturer of the world get all sucked up into China. And out the other side, we're supposed to see this huge burst of finished goods. So we're going to fill all the container ships and we're going to flood Walmart with way too much stuff and goods prices are going to fall. Well, the first half of that, you could debate whether or not it's happening. It's been almost two months since they announced the reopening. February 7th, it'll be two months since they really renounced the December 7th reopening. Uh, I don't see commodity prices like industrial materials and, and crude oil booming. Yeah, they're up a little bit, but they're not discounting that there's this massive amount of demand that's going to suck all these commodities, raw materials, aluminum and copper and, and everything and crude oil. And then out the other side, when they go through this, the manufacturing process is going to be finished goods. That's not really starting to happen yet. Maybe it does. Maybe it's coming. But right now, I think this is a really complicated issue. The last thing is people want to believe that what this means is China is going, everybody is going to book a ticket to Paris and they're going to go and they're going to empty the Chanel stores. And so luxury goods are going to be flying off the, off the shelves. That demonstrably has not happened. Oh, yes, airline traffic in China is up to other cities in China. And one of the reasons why airline traffic was up so much in the beginning was they had zero COVID. And what happened in zero COVID? You're walking down the street. Mining, remember, China is an authoritarian government. You're walking down the street, minding your own business, and some government official, and this is not being sarcastic to get the point across, some government official in a hazmat suit walks up to Mike, shoves a giant Q-tip in his nose. It tests positive for COVID. You are immediately taken to a quarantine center. But but I'm from a city 700 miles away. You're stuck in the quarantine center. So when zero COVID ended, the first thing you did was you booked a flight to go home. And that's why you saw this gigantic surge of airline traffic 
come out of China right away. It is not a bunch of rich people thinking that they have to empty their bank account in luxury stores in Paris, which is what all the hedge fund managers want to believe it is as a sign that we're going to have booming growth out of China. Yeah, I, I got uh, all great points, Jim. Just to sort of reiterate what, what both of you are saying. So Powell was asked, um, uh, uh, not about China, but he said that the global picture has improved. And I imagine he must have been referring to that. Also, in the statement that was released 30 minutes before at 2 p.m. Eastern today, uh, what, what was lacking was... Uh, a, a statement from December, where in December they said the war and related events are contributing to upward pressure on inflation and weighing on global economic activity. By those related events, I imagined uh, the China lockdown and China situation must have been referred to. Now, no related events are uh, referred to. So I think the, the Federal Reserve definitely acknowledged that. Jim, I just so Jim, it sounds like you are a skeptic of the China reopening story, a, a skeptic of the yes. China bull market story. I want to ask you uh, two If things. I could be yeah, real yeah. quick on that. Yes, I am a skeptic. China is reopening. China's growth will uptick. Mm -hmm. so let's not, let, I'm not saying it won't. I'm just saying that this whole idea that it's going to be a return to 2019, it's not going to go the way people think it's going to go. That it's going to be just like in the West, what, what were we saying in 20 and 20, 21 and early 22 with the reopening? Everybody's going to go back to the office five days a week. That's what the reopening meant. And it never materialized. Mm. I don't think it's going to materialize the way people think. So I think that the standard play of what does it mean that we're going to return to 2021 with China is not going to play out quite the way they think. And lastly, when he talked about the global situation, I also think he meant Europe. And I also think he meant that Europe is... Weather in Europe has been much warmer than everybody expects. The drawdown on natural gas has been much less because they don't have to spend burn as much gas to heat their homes. So their inventories of natural gas are at all-time highs for February 1st in Europe. And so this whole fear that there was going to be this gigantic drag on the European economy because of the higher energy prices that they had to pay to accumulate the gas, um, the natural gas to heat themselves during the winter is proving to not be as bad as we think. And you can thank the weather for that. By the way, that doesn't come without a consequence, I might add. Europe is rich. Europe can pay up to get natural gas to make sure everybody's home can get heated this winter. Pakistan can't. And Pakistan can't afford world prices for natural gas, Pakistan is having rolling blackouts and Pakistan is having um, rolling um, uh, cuts off of gas. So people in the, in, the, in the colder climates of Pakistan cannot heat their homes. Pakistan's got a big political problem right now. They don't have an extra 150 billion euros hanging around to say, well, if we have to pay more for gas, we have to pay more for gas. And so there is a consequence. Europe drove the price up of gas because they didn't want to go cold this winter. Perfectly fine. But the poor countries are suffering uh, for it, too. And we shouldn't forget that. Absolutely. Um, so I've got maybe this will segue in, uh, Jack, after this question, I'll sort of call on you to, to walk through. I know you've put the, put a lot of effort into creating some some nice charts for this. Um, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you there, Jim, on I think it might be good at this point, too. I know CPI came out a little while ago, but to your point about China, really, the impact that's going to have is on sort of goods inflation and goods inflation. We know from last CPI, that's already turned right in several times, right. Powell called attention to this one very specific thing that he's looking at, which is 
core X shelter, right? So really, when you separate all that out, what he's looking at is wages, right? And again, there was even a question from one of the reporters, I believe it was, uh, might have been the reporter Jack Colby that you, that you just had on Forward Guidance. But basically, the, the idea was, you know, are we going to need to see, you know, an increase in unemployment, essentially, before, uh, you know, inflation turns? So Jim, could you, could you just kind of tease out how do you think Powell is thinking about the relationship between inflation and unemployment? And then what are, what are your thoughts, right? Do we need to see higher unemployment uh, in order for inflation to be to be beaten or tamed? Yeah. So first of all, they've invented a new statistic over at the Fed called core less housing services, not shelter. So you got to get the phrasing right ah, so you can be the sorry cool. Sorry about that. Otherwise, yeah. you're not you're not a cool kid if you don't get yeah. it right. It, <laughs> but remember, it's something that the Fed invented three months ago. So that's so it's core less housing services. Paul said today it's 56 percent of core inflation. So the other 46 percent of core inflation is housing services owner's equivalent rent, rents of primary residents, you know, um, and those things, and goods, actual things as well. We know that goods inflation is down a lot. Um, there's a question as to whether or not it might be bottoming right now. I mean, it's down so much, it might be bottoming soon. Um, there might have been a little inkling of that in the uh, ISM report today. Prices paid actually upticked and beat Wall Street's estimates by a lot. Uh, but that's just one month. But maybe that's bottoming. And we know that housing and OER and stuff, that's going to roll over. But that's only half. And that was what he was talking about. In that 46%, we've got definite signs of disinflation. The other 56%, um, services, less, um, housing, um, services less housing services, he is saying that what drives that is wage inflation. If, and the way I like to put it is if, if you look at, Average hourly earnings over the last year, they're up by 4.6%. So mm -hmm. if everybody's getting a 4.6% raise, which is what that is suggesting, then everybody can afford 4.6% inflation because you're know you you, you, you you're going to get the same amount of goods in a year, but pay 4.5% more for it, but you got a 4.5% raise to pay for it. So his argument is, and I don't think his argument is wrong, if you want 2% inflation, you can't give everybody a 4% raise and continue to see prices go up. All prices, including services, which is more than half the number, go up too. And so we need to see wage inflation come down. Well, how do we get in wage inflation down? We need either more, more supply of workers, um, and that's all kind of workers. That's not just migrant workers coming in because not every job is appropriate for a migrant worker. It means to get people that have uh, uh, retired early to come back into the workforce and to get everybody else back in the workforce. You need more workers. By the way, one of the things Paul has mentioned is that we have excess retirement. There's another fun Fed word for you. Three million people are retired more than the demographers thought would be retired at this point three years ago. Why do we have 3 million more people retired? Paul gave us an answer. This was at a um, uh, presser a couple of pressers ago in a few speeches he gave a few months ago. The biggest reason is it's older people with comorbidities worried about their health. Okay, fine. Uh, that's a legitimate thing. If you're worried about your health, you don't want to be in a job where you have a public facing job where you have people mm. breathing on you all day long. I get that. But he said the second biggest reason was People have made so much money with their stock and housing prices going up that they could retire now. 
So, oh, so a wealth effect. So they all did buy monkey JPEGs and then they quit is basically <laughs> what he said. Hopefully mm -hmm. they sold their monkey JPEGs in time. Otherwise they round tripped and they're going to have to come back into the workforce. But that was the other thing he said, which fit right in with when he was saying that a few months ago was, so you're going to bludgeon the stock market because otherwise if it goes to 4,800, everybody's going to get rich again and quit. And then we're going to be back to high wages. So this is the argument that he's trying to put is that we need to have wages come down. So you either need more supply of workers or you need less demand for jobs. Well, the JOLTS report, the Job Opportunities Labor Turnover Report came out today, and that measures all of the open jobs in the United States. It went up by 600,000 in December, because that's what was reported today, to 11 million. There are 11 million open jobs in the United States. Uh, there are 5.7 million unemployed people in the United States. There's 1.9 open jobs for every unemployed person, and it's just off the all-time high of July. Well, if you've got employers demanding that many, I got 11 million jobs I got to fill. How am I going to fill them? I'm going to pay up. Just pay up to get those people in those jobs. Wages are going to keep going up, and that means inflation is going to keep going higher. Now, I'll give you one last thing to consider. Bank rate does a survey of consumer finances. And this came out last week. In their survey, 57%, 57% of the American public said they can't come up with $1,000 in an emergency. Mm. That's So they live paycheck to paycheck. What can we also say about those 57%? They probably don't own a stock portfolio. They probably rent. They certainly don't own a neon Lambo. We know that for sure, too. Uh, and so they live paycheck to paycheck. If they're getting a four and a half percent raise and the inflation rate currently is six ish, they're buying less now than they did a year ago. Uh, they don't have anything like a stock portfolio, or their home price to, to offset any of this. Paul is correct. These are the people that we need to address. This is why we have to get inflation down because otherwise they keep losing. And so this whole notion that, well, they'll just call it three or 4% is the new target, call it a day and let the stock market take off. Not going to help those people because uh, um, unless, unless they are going to permanently get 5% raises or 4% raises every year forever, they're going to continue to fall further and further behind. So I agree with him that inflation is the issue that needs to be addressed with. And whether or not it is being addressed properly is something we could debate. But Paul has decided that one of the things he needed, or at least he did before today, was one of the things he needed to rein in inflation was a reverse wealth effect or tightening financial conditions. You and me and everybody else, we feel a little less wealthy, not willing to spend as much money that brings down prices so that those 57%, uh, they don't see everything run away from them because their paycheck is not keeping up with inflation. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. 
Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero, just a phenomenal lineup of speakers. And you can expect the same this year. If you use margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's margin 10 because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Jim, uh, um, I'm curious. To my conclusion from today was that Powell really puts a uh, prime focus on inflation data and pretty much everything is secondary or tertiary to him. Before this meeting, I thought, oh, of course, Powell cares most about core PCE, but he also really cares about jolts. He also really cares about the labor force participation rate. He also uh, um, cares about uh, wage growth because, you know, if wage growth is 6%, then inflation will get unanchored. He cares about inflation expectations. Uh, he cares about financial conditions. If people are, you know, making so much money, they don't have to work, then uh, that's, that's bad for inflation. But my conclusion from today's meeting is uh, that he... It really, it really is inflation data because inflation data is the only piece of data that moved in his favor. Everything else uh, moved moved away from him. I mean, yes, um, the, the house of price, the, the price of housing went down, but financial conditions uh, by credit spreads and, and stocks and what we talked about uh, ha have loosened. So I'm curious what you think about that. Uh, and then uh, also, I'm curious about some economic data that is not so much macroeconomic coming from uh, uh, agencies, government agencies, but individual companies, companies like Visa, MasterCard, Amex, showing spending uh, has exploded higher during this period of slowing growth, uh, which now he's, Powell is calling subdued growth. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the state of the consumer seems strong. And also, housing is so weak, in my opinion, just looking through some of these home building companies, they're selling houses for 11% less uh, the, the price than they were six months ago. Uh, whereas people are looking at the Case Shiller, which is ex extremely lagging. Um, so, and, and the stocks, the home builder stocks, stocks, stocks are rising. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think about the uh, amount of aggregate spending, um, as, as well as my thought about uh, Powell maybe caring a little bit less about jolts and the other data than he maybe let on a few months ago. Well, um, if you go back to the presser, and he does this at every at every presser, the the opening paragraph is something along the lines of "We care about the American people, and our job is to serve the American people." And then, um, my words to explain, inflation is the issue. So he lays that out in the first paragraph of every presser that this is the issue. If you don't get inflation under control, you don't have an economy. He says that. I have no agree with him. I think inflation is that important. So for those, you know, the Anthony Scaramucci's of the world, ah, the Fed will just declare five percent being neutral, and we're, you know, we could get the S and P back to fifty five hundred. Boy, that really misses the boat. It misses the boat in a lot of ways. It, you have to get inflation under control. No, you know, there's no amount of damage you can do if you don't have to get inflation under control because the damage inflation does would be greater. I'm in that camp. I think Paul is in that camp. Now, when it comes to the economy, the real economy, oh, we're going to have a recession. Oh, we're going to have a slowdown. Paul seems to be focused on one set of statistics. The labor market is what it is. He's defined the economy as the labor market. What about housing? What about, um, you know, that market has been struggling because it's so interest rate sensitive. All these rate hikes have really bludgeoned housing. Paul waved that off a couple of meetings ago where he said, well, what about the housing market falling apart? He goes, it is essentially said, 
yeah, well, look at how much the gains were in 20 and 21. They're up a ton. They're down a little. It's a small retracement. Next question. That's kind of the way that he, he's been kind of dismissive of the declines in housing. You were dumb enough to buy a house in May of last year. That's your problem. But if you owned your house from 2018, all right, you're, you, you still got huge gains in it, just a little bit less so. That's the way that he, he kind of views it. But to him, everything is about, how, is about labor. Initial claims, 186,000, nine-month low. 12 months in a row, 200,000 payrolls. We'll see what happens on Friday, whether or not we keep that streak going. Jolts at 11 million. Uh, even ISM employment today, still above 50, still in expansion phase. He mentioned that. He looked at all that and he said, labor market's fine. If the labor market is fine, he's trying to say, I see no reason to pivot. I see no reason to pivot if no one's losing their job. Now, if no one's losing their job, if, if employers are still expanding the amount of jobs that they're looking for. Um, of course, Wall Street's retort to that is, you just wait, Jay. Wait till you see the May, June, July data. It's going to be terrible, and you're going to change your opinion on that. We'll see. We'll see if I kind of have start to have my doubts as to whether or not the data is actually going to turn bad um, at that point. And Paul, I think, is going to try and dig in at that point and say, look, I'm going to go to five on the funds rate. I'm going to stay there till 24, and then we'll assess where things are. So I think the way he looks at it is inflation is first, second, and third, and fourth is labor. If you want to ask me about tech layoffs, uh, who gives a shit about the bros? If you want to ask me about oh, housing, you already had a lot of, don't think that that's not how they think about that at the Fed, by the way. Uh, if you want to talk about housing, yeah, you, 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 you were fat and happy in 20 and 21. So now you got to pay back a little bit in 22. You'll survive. That's the kind of the way that they, they look at that right now. Uh, but then they, their focus is 57% don't have $1,000. What do we do for those people? And if I have to make Scaramucci's life miserable, I'll make Scaramucci's life miserable uh, along the way. And that's kind of the viewpoint I think that they have over at the Fed right now. Jim, I, I want to ask you if I can about the immense disconnect where the Federal Reserve is saying interest rates will be over the next 12 months and where yeah. Wall Street is pricing them, looking at the forward race curve. So if we could actually put up that that chart that we have in, in and this I'm deck. looking at it right now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so most of the charts in this deck are from for you and your team at Bianco Research. Uh, this this chart is actually from uh, Jerome and uh, Blockland on, on, on Twitter. And it just shows that uh, immense uh, disconnect here. I'll put, I'll put it on the screen. Um, yep. So in, in red, we have... Uh, the Fed's dot plot from December of last year, and in green, we which which shows the uh, interest rates being above five percent out until 2024, and in green we have what the market thinks, which shows a series of escalating rate cuts, uh, as many as seven or eight going out until uh, 2024. Although that that's not I don't think on, on the screen. And Powell was asked about that disconnect, and he said, eh, I'm I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. So. Are you worried about that, Jim? And, and uh, how do you think that, will, that that disconnect will resolve? Well, he's not worried about it because his focus is the 57% that are on stocks. And so I understand that. I think that uh, for the DGEN community, this is a problem, uh, that, that there's this disconnect right now. I might add um, that in history, it's not surprising that you get a disconnect like this, that the market thinks one way and the Fed communicates another way. That's not unusual. Uh, historically speaking, the market, the Fed usually comes to the market historically. 
except for 2022, when you were just bludgeoned to death, waiting for the Fed to come, the Fed to pause, the Fed to pivot, the Fed to step down, the Fed's going to stop, the Fed's going to change its mind. And you suffered through, between stocks and bonds, the worst year in like 200 years is what you wound up having uh, happen. And if you were in crypto, uh, you're actually, you know, above average intelligence in crypto. If you're still solvent today at this point, it's been so bad in crypto, at least in 2022 was. So this is not unusual that you have this, this uh, divergence. Uh, the question is, why do we have this divergence? I think it's largely because the market expects by mid-year the data to be bad. That the GDP, I think you've got that chart in here. It's one of my charts. Mm -hmm. The um, the GDP chart, it's the last one in the book. Uh, and then, uh, so the black line is GDP for the, for the last several quarters. The orange line is what Wall Street expects GDP to be. First of all, they expect fourth quarter to get to get revised down. First quarter at zero. Second and third quarter, they expect negative. Negative. So they expect by mid-year negative GDP and everybody hyperventilating that we're in recession. Go up a couple of charts to the unemployment rate chart. It looks exactly the same with a black and orange line, that one. This is um, yeah. Wall Street's, this is the unemployment rate and this is what Wall Street expects the unemployment rate to be. This is why they think the Fed's going to cut. By mid-year, we're going to have job losses, we have negative GDP, things are going to be bad, the Fed's going to cut. That's why we've got that divergence. Now, if that doesn't happen, and I might add, again, these are consensus forecasts, and consensus forecasts are always wrong, but we don't know how they're going to be wrong. They could be wrong in that it could be much worse. They could be wrong in that there won't be any rise in inflation or in unemployment at this point. Uh, and so we'll have to figure that out. But this is why the, I think we have this divergence. They expect, they being the consensus, mid-year, things are going to look ugly. And therefore, the Fed is going to have to come to the market's viewpoint. The Fed doesn't see it now. They see nine-month lows in on claims. They see 11 million in, in um, jolts. They see over 50 in ISM employment, which means expansion. They conclude there's nothing wrong with the labor market. Wall Street is saying, wait three or four months, and it will be bad. And if it is, then the Fed will probably be under enormous pressure to cut rates. But if the consensus forecast is wrong and that this slowdown does not materialize, then we're going to probably see a disappointment in that anybody who's pricing in that there's going to be lower rates later this year, they're going to be disappointed. So, so Jim, one thing that, you know, I wasn't quite as bearish heading into this FOMC as, as our friend Jack here. But one thing that I, I was a little maybe disappointed to see was I, I do think that First of all, I think the Fed deserves a little bit of credit for the for the pace at which they've been hiking this year, for the verbiage that you've gotten from Powell. Uh, I think they've turned appropriately hawkish. The Where it was going to get tricky for him was when we started to see the unemployment rate move up, right? Because up until now, there's been very little political pressure, right? You've had, to, to your point, I've heard you say this before, right? All the people that uh, you know are screaming at, at Powell right now are basically people on Wall Street, right, who are getting their portfolios hammered. But no one on Main Street yet is screaming because they haven't been losing their jobs. So this right. was the leeway that he had, right, to really continue to hike. Um, and, and it does feel a little bit odd that he's turning bullish at this point, especially now that, you know, we haven't talked about this, but Lael Brainerd, right, who was the one who I think initially started to say, hey, maybe we should be uh, easing off sooner. She's now 
out of the Fed as well. So it seems like all these obstacles were sort of cleared out of his way. So it is curious to me, just to reiterate your point at the top, made at the top here, that this he decided to go so this came Wait, off. Is, it, so is that official? I know there are rumors that Brandar is leaving. Jim, is that official? It's not official. Um, she's a leading candidate to be the National Economic Council chairman. Um, Brian Deese has the job right now. Uh, you may remember in the Trump administration, Larry Kudlow had that job uh, as well. Um, but I think at this point, it's almost a guarantee that she's going to get the job. She was passed over for Treasury Secretary. She was passed over to be Fed chairman. If they float her name for this and pass her over yet again, that would be very, very bad. So I think she's essentially going to get the job and she's going to leave the vice chairman of the Fed. The assumption is she is she's way over on the on the dovish end. That's correct. The assumption is somebody who's going to replace her might be more centrist or hawkish. We don't know that. They can replace her with somebody just equally as dovish as she is mm. um, right now. So remains to be seen um, where, where they go with it. But I suspect she'll get that NEC job. Mm. Uh, Jim, so I'm going to take a guess that before this meeting, you thought that they were going to hike on 25 today, obviously, as well as hike in March by 25. Uh, because of the statement in the, the uh, uh, released in the 2 p.m. statement, uh, we know almost for almost for certain, you know, 95 percent, 99 percent that they're going to hike by 25 again in March. It's uh, actually so 83. I looked it up right before we started talking. It's 83 percent, according to the Fed Fund Futures, that they're going to hike 25 uh, March 22nd. Right. I, I think it's I think it's 95. Yeah, the market the market still thinks it's it's, it's 83. Um, I mean, the state. The, the, the sentence is the, is the sentence. But my, my curious for you, uh, my question for you is, do, what do you think about whether they'll hike another 25 in June? How are you weighing the probabilities of a, another hike in June before today's meeting? And how are you uh, viewing that odds now? Well, the next meeting is May 3rd um, after that. And oh, yeah, I could tell you that when I looked up those odds, I looked up these the other odds. Assuming that they hike 25 in March, you're at about 45% chance that they're going to hike again in, in May to get to five and five and a quarter. So slightly less than 50, but that's the meeting after the meeting. So that's way off in the future when it comes to this. But the market's at about, let's call it even money, that they're going to hike at least uh, one more time. I think they're going to do it. I think they're going to go, they're going to hike one more time in the May meeting to five, five and a quarter. But then by the admission that Paul kind of led to today, that's it. They're done. And that's one of the reasons why the market rallied, right? All right. So you're going to hike, you're going to hike in March, 25 basis points and 50, 50 in May. And maybe Jim thinks they're going to do it, but I think they're not going to do it. But what difference does it make? They've already gone 450 basis points at that point. What's another 25? Uh, that's kind of the way that then you're done. And like I said before, once the Fed is done, the market's perception is there will be no more rate hikes. They're done for good. And then the parlor game starts is when do they start cutting? Uh, there won't be a pause at five and a, five to five and a quarter and then raise rates in the future. That's what the market is expecting. That doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. But that's why I think you had such a dovish reaction. All right, so we're arguing about one or two more rate hikes, and then they're and then they're done. I think that they're going to they're going to follow through on what they said. They're going to follow through on five to five and a quarter. They intend intend on following through on staying there all year. Um, and we'll see whether or not the consensus is right and that the economic data turns bad. By the way, quick word about the economic data. A year ago, we got negative GDP in the first quarter, negative GDP in the second quarter. And what was the narrative a year ago? This is not a recession. We were, And I kept saying at the time, 
it's the definition of a recession, two negative quarters. But, but that sorry, Jim, but it's, it's, it's real GDP. It, nominal GDP, it was a boom. It was only because of inflation that it was- That's true, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. the way you measure. That's the way you measure inflation and, and recessions is real GDP. You don't measure it off of nominal because you didn't have negative nominal in the 80s uh, and you still had recessions then too. But then the expectation is that in this first and second quarter of 23, even if we don't get negative GDP, that's going to be a recession. So I'm really kind of scratching my head as to how the, the consensus is trying to figure this stuff out. Uh, you know, narrative drives everything. Don't don't let the numbers get in the way of a good narrative. I guess is they've decided that the narrative is recession this year, not recession last year. Maybe maybe they got the idea right. They're just a year late that the recession already occurred. It, it occurred a year ago, and when they were saying that it wasn't one. So we'll see. And what would you think about if, if if last year was a recession, it would be one in which the unemployment rate was not only low, but low and falling even lower, as well as one in which cr uh, credit losses on the banks was essentially zero and in some cases negative. Uh, do you view that as a very strange recession uh, uh, or just or not a recession? I view that as a very strange recession. And that's largely because you did something before that that has never been done in human history. You completely stopped the global economy for months on end, and then you restarted it. And you're finding that when you restarted it, it didn't re immediately rebound back to the way it was before COVID. As I said, we are not going back to five days a week. That is tectonic, that, the, you know, that there is this massive change in the way we live and work. If you work at home, three days a week or two days a week, and you will go to the office three days a week, you're home four days a week, not two, Saturday and Sunday. You've doubled the amount of time you're at home. That is a big lifestyle change for everybody that does that. So yes, the point I'm trying to bring up is, is this unlike any other recession that we've seen? Yes, because what happened in 2021 is unlike anything we ever imagined before it actually happened. No one had war gamed out or theorized what happens if we take uh, the entire global economy and shut it all down for several months on end and then restart it? You know, mm. 2019, if you brought that up, people would have thought, you know, you're making stuff up at, at that point. We don't do that. Well, that's what we did. And that's why this is unlike anything we've seen. And what my fear is about Wall Street is they've decided that doesn't matter. We're, we're ultimately going to do, as Dave Solomon, the head of Goldman Sachs, said in 2024, 2025, when you look at Midtown Manhattan, you'll see 2019. You'll see the hustle and bustle and all the offices will be filled with people just like it was in 2019. Um, he said that last year. I don't know if he still believes it, but he said that last year. Well, good luck but, with that argument as well. Yeah, so but we'll Jim, see. occupancy rates have exploded higher. They're now at 50%. Yeah, I know. They're at 50%. When are they going to 100? They were at 100. You know, the, the, I mean, the occupancy rates of signed leases is 50%. That's what we're talking about, right? The yeah. occupancy rate of a signed lease before 2019 was always 100%. If a company signed a lease, there were bodies in that, in that lease. You didn't sign a lease to keep it empty. Well, now you sign this lease and only half of that space is being used. And that doesn't count for the 20 odd percent of space that is still unleased, that is on its way to 25% un unleased at this point.
Mm. Well, soft so, yeah, landing. I'm sure. I, I, I know we got a. Uh, I got a lot, a lot more questions for for Jim, and I'm sure you do too. But let's just take a, a quick opportunity to say that yeah, this this episode will be released on your podcast, Mike, uh, on the margin, as well as my podcast for guidance. So if you're listening to this on on the margin, check out my show for guidance, and if you're listening to for guidance, check out um, on the margin. Uh, Mike, back to you. So I've got a I've got a question for, and yes ab- absolutely. Uh, so I've I've got a question for you. Um, so we we know that uh, Jack really wanted to see the world burn here and people go out of jobs and uh, hunger lines and all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> I'm just messing with Jack. But uh, I you know Jim I, I want to get back to this idea of like it's 2021 again, right? And and you know to your point, I see what you're saying, right? So in you you mentioned crypto and kind of some of the uh, I would push back. I think Solana is a quality project, but a lot like the Aptos is you know 19 billion dollar valuation. They sprung off the lows and they they responded the best carvana oh, i got a, i got a free sweatshirt from them and i really like it so be careful <laughs> yeah all right so we but, know we know what we know what you are we're just negotiating the price right you got a free sweatshirt <laughs> um so you know it, what's your sort of base case for this year i I'd, I'd love to you know as much as we can sort of dust off the old the old crystal ball and i mean do you really think that we're going to see the the return of the paradigm that we had in 2021 of these meme stocks and reddits and all this crazy stuff sort of going on is that is that a legit is that your sort of base case for the year or if that happens i mean does powell kind of stand up and say you have misinterpreted this last presser and kind of take up the hawker stance again i i would not be surprised just take your last point first that he might push back that you misinterpreted what I said at the presser. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the Fed is in a blackout period, which ends Friday, and he's got all next week to, like I said, you know, get me on some speaker circuit so I could go give a speech and say you misinterpreted what I said. Uh, and so that wouldn't surprise me. And then he'll get all of his minions to kind of repeat the same thing over and over as well. The minions being Fed governors. Uh, and so that they'll they'll repeat that as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. But as far as my base case goes, I've been arguing that inflation has peaked. That is easy to see. And it's also the least important thing you can say, that it's peaked. The real important question is, is the long-term rate of inflation returning to its pre-COVID levels of 2% without the depressant of a recession? Yeah, if you kill demand and throw everybody out of work because of a recession, you'll get the inflation rate down to 2%. And then when we rebound, it goes right back up. So does it go to 2% organically like it was from, say, 2009 to 2021? It was just kind of, or 2020, right before the pandemic. Mm. It was in that 2% range. Does it return to that? Wall Street seems to believe the answer is yes, that it will return to that. And they've always thought that. I've pushed back on that. And I've said there are base effects in the inflation rate It is going to come down through June. June will most likely be the low print of the year because you'll be dropping off 0.8s, 0.1, 1.0s, 0.6s on the monthly inflation number. And you'll probably replace them with lower numbers. But then starting in July, you'll be dropping zeros and 0.2s and stuff. And it'll be easy for the month over month number to beat that. So you'll probably bottom in June. I've argued that I think you're probably going to bottom at some number above 2% and maybe even 3% or higher in June Mm. and then drift higher the rest of the year. So the first half of the year, the animal spirits will continue to run as we've seen right now. And they continue to go, um, whether it's ARC or Aptos or Tesla or whatever it happens to be that they continue to run. 
And then when we start to get to that reality that inflation will not go to that 2% level and then probably drift higher for the rest of the year, disappointment will set in that the inflation fight's not over and rates are not going to come down and that the Fed might not have been, to use their words, sufficiently restrictive. That they're not, in fact, Powell said that today. He uses that phrase, sufficiently restrictive. Wall Street thinks they have been sufficiently restrictive, which is why they think that there's going to be a recession. You've bludgeoned the economy with high rates. Powell said, no, we haven't. We're only just getting to sufficiently restrictive when we get to 5%. If in the second half of the year we get 3% inflation, we don't have a big rise of unemployment, we don't have negative GDP, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts talking about going to six at that point. And then that disappointment will come in all over again because this market is so driven by liquidity and it is so driven by interest rates. One quick thought about that. Um, or Before I get to that quick thought, let me just, why do I think the inflation rate's not going back to two? Because we're in a post-pandemic economy. The end of globalization is upon us. I don't think the reopening in China, as we discussed, is going to go as we think it's going to go. We've got labor constraints, which are going to keep wages high. If we've got 11 million jobs, 1.9 for every unemployed worker, I don't see how we're going to get the, the wage growth to 2%. We've got energy problems. Russia is the biggest energy supplier in the world. Europe has, as I mentioned before, Europe has the money to pay up for gas, but Pakistan doesn't. And so we've got big energy problems worldwide. Maybe they're not cold you know, in Paris right now because they could keep their homes heated at the level that they want to be, but they are in Istanbul and they mm. are in a, in a lot of other poor places around the world as well. And so that is going to be uh, a real problem as we go forward. Combine all of that, I think we're in a different economy. Does that mean that we're in a permanently high inflation rate? No. But what it means is the economy needs to be restructured for this new post-pandemic economy. And that's trillions of dollars in many years to restructure it. But the problem is we're not restructuring it. We're arguing whether or not we need to in the first place. Wall Street's argument is you don't have to restructure it. Just sit there, wait, do nothing, and you'll see that everything will go back to the way it was, and we don't have to change anything. And I think we do. And I think we're going to have to find a new source of cheap energy. That might be the Bakken Field or Eagle Fort in Texas. Uh, you know, just two ideas of where we – I think we're going to have to find reshoring and other, other places to make stuff other than – China, if we want to go back to globalization. And I think we're going to have to see a revamp of our labor laws if we want to reopen the, um, you know, to bring supply and demand for labor into balance to lower wage growth. We could do all that if we believed we had to, but we don't believe we have to. And so we're wasting time is, is where we're going. So that's why I think that as rates come, as inflation rate comes down, the animal spirits will continue to get people excited that this is it, we're going back to two, and it's going to be like 2010 to 2020 all over again. And the thing I was going to say is before, what was the hallmark of 2010 to 2020? What was the investing style that worked in that decade? You bought a broad-based ETF or a crypto, uh, um, um, and you whined all day long that the Fed needs to cut rates to zero and print faster so that everything goes up. 
And that largely is what the Fed did. And that's largely what worked is that. And so what is it that everybody wants to go back to? I want to buy spiders. I want to buy triple Qs. I want to buy ARC. I want to buy Solana. And damn it, Jay, cut to zero and start printing. So all this shit goes up and I can then afford my neon Lambo again, just like we did in 2020. That's what we want. We want to go back to that. But I think that investing style is over. I think we're in a different world and the different, the new investing style world we're in is back to an old 90s style stock picker world where it isn't going to be just, I want to own, you know, autos, which auto company do you want to own? I want to own energy. Which energy company do you want to own? I want to own crypto. Which crypto do you want to own? Because they're not all going to go up and down together as they have been for the last several years. They were all they were all betas of each other, right? You know, uh, Bitcoin went up the least in rallies, went down the least in declines, mm. and everything else was a little bit higher beta from Bitcoin. I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see, and it would be to me a long-term good thing for crypto, a zero correlation. Some projects are going up, some projects are going down, some projects are going sideways. The market is sorting out the winners and the losers. That would be very healthy for that market long-term. But if it's going to be throw a dart by anything that that has a liquidity pull on Uniswap and wind the J to print faster. So all that shit goes up. I think that era is over and it should be over um, right now because that would be a healthier era if we were to move into that kind of more discriminating era. Yeah. I tend to agree. You know, that's been my my whole financial life. Paying attention to markets mm -hmm. has been exactly the dynamic that you described, which is not necessarily which co company is sort of performing best, but liquidity conditions, which is, I agree with you. I think that's long-term pre-negative. Yeah, I think, you know, it worked. I mean, that's, I mean, I want to be I'm clear. That worked great from 2010 to the pandemic. Is it, it was, that was the way to invest. Mm -hmm. But this whole idea now that we need to return this is why we obsess about Jay Paul, because we want the liquidity spigot open, because we think that's the only way we're going to get the markets up is to get the liquidity spigot to reopen itself. It is not. I'm old enough to remember the 80s when we were picking stocks and there was, you know, there would be. And energy, there would be certain energy stocks that were falling apart and there'd be other energy stocks that were soaring at the same time because these energy stocks were doing it wrong and these energy stocks were doing it right. And that was that was the environment that it was for decades going into the 80s and early 90s. Then the advent of computerization and ETFs and you could buy broad-based baskets for very simple prices. And then the Federal Reserve focusing on on financial conditions as they did following the 2008 crash. And then everything became about liquidity. And I don't think necessarily that that is a good thing. It worked for a long time. I just think from this moment forward, it may not work as well as everybody thinks it used to work. Jim, I want to know uh, your thoughts on the inverted yield curve as well as the effect of the rate hikes, which began less than a year ago on the economy. Uh, we are frequently reminded that rate hikes affect the economy with a uh, long and variable lag, uh, which can be anywhere from 12 months to 18 months. Maybe it's shorter now because of some reason that Jay Powell says. Um, but uh, that would suggest that 
the effect of the rate hikes wouldn't start until a few months and it would only, only get worse. Uh, likewise, what do you think about the fact that uh, short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates, which frequently, I mean, which frequently happens before a recession. And it has, I think, just looking from the Fred website since the you know, 1950s, a perfect tr track record of, of occurring before a, a recession. Um, you know, maybe in the history of interest rates, or the, the excellent book you recommended, thanks for the recommendation, you know, maybe, maybe that happened some, some other time. But uh, that, you know, it, it, does that not uh, worry you? And also the timing of the yield curve inversion happens pretty early. W wouldn't a recession last year and not a recession this year or maybe even next year uh, be, quote, too soon of a recession uh, to, to match up with the yield curve? Yeah. So let's uh, you're right. Let's back up. Normal, the normal yield curve is the lowest interest rate should be money that is lent for one day, overnight money, like the Fed funds rate. And then as you go longer in term to a two-year, three-year, 10-year, 30-year, 100-year, that those rates progressively get higher. That's a normally sloped yield curve. When you get into an inverted yield curve, the highest inflation rate, or excuse me, the highest interest rate is short-term interest rates. And then each longer one gets lower and lower and lower. Now, why do we have an inverted yield curve? Because the front end is controlled by the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve has been keeping, is hiked rates again today and is keeping rates up. And so those rates are up. The long end is more market driven. And the long end is sensing that there is going to be a recession. So there is a bid for longer term securities. And I might be clear here, relative to short term securities, so that I want to own longer term US treasuries if we're going to have a slowing economy and we're going to have depressed inflation because of the slowing economy, that's all bullish for bonds. And then eventually the Fed will come around and start cutting rates. And that's even bullish for bonds. So that's why the yield curve has been inverted. You are correct. It has a 100% track record of leading recessions. Um, but here's the thing. The yield curve that is most commonly looked at when deciding whether or not it's leading a recession is the 10-year yield minus the three-month yield. That inverted it right around Thanksgiving in late November. It leads by an average of about 10 months, which means that if we have a recession on average, that would start in late September or maybe call it October 1st, if you will, because uh, they usually date recessions to the nearest uh, beginning of the month. So we're still seven or eight months away from the start of the recession. It can, as history shown, be as far as 18 months into the future. That would put it in March or April of next year. So is the yield curve predicting a recession? Sure, it is. But what if the recession doesn't start for another 13 or 14 months? What if the economy stays okay for 10 to 12 more months? Does this market have the patience to continue to wait out a slowdown and a Fed pivot? I don't think it does. I think that that's why they've priced it in in June. And if they don't get it in June, they're going to get very disappointed by the point that June comes along. Could the recession, could this be the one time that the yield curve gets it wrong? Well, the guy who kind of popularized and pioneered all of the yield curve work is a, now a Duke professor, Cam Harvey. Um, it was his, actually, it was his PhD dissertation in the 1980s at the University of Chicago. 
that really popularized the yield curve as a leading indicator of recession. Mm. And CAM came out uh, about a month ago and argued that if it was ever going to, no indicator is always perfect. And if there was ever going to be a time where the yield curve fails to predict a recession, now's the time. And his argument was because it is so discounted right now that he has been contacted by regular corporations around the world saying, should I cut back production because the yield curve's inverted? And that means that things are going to slow down later this year. No one ever thought that before the yield. Every other right. time the yield curve inverted. Oh, who gives a shit about the yield curve? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're going to recession. Now everybody wants to change their lifestyle because the yield curve is inverted. And his argument is, so now it's not going to work. There's a certain logic to that. There's a lot of logic to what he is he is suggesting. So I'm not going to go as far as Cam is right now and say it's not going to work. I wouldn't be surprised if the law if that long and variable lag is a lot longer this time around because we're not seeing any signs of a slowdown at least yet. And I would just pose the rhetorical question of is the pivot crowd ready to wait a year before they get the sign that they want for pivot? I think they want to see the sign in 60 days and they're going to start to get very antsy and they're going to start to get very disappointed if they don't see in 60 to 90 days signs of a weakening economy to get a pivot. But the yield curve, yeah, it could still work. It still might be a 24 story because remember, it only inverted around Thanksgiving. So it's only been two months and it usually leads by 10 to 18 months or something along those lines. It's been as short as like six or seven months in the past as well, too. So, yeah, the yield curve, that's how the yield curve works, why the yield curve works and why it still might still be way off in the future in terms of any kind of economic slowdown. And Cam makes a compelling case that maybe this is the one that's wrong. We'll see. Yeah. Wow. I stumped you guys, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I think we're. I think that's honestly that's probably a pretty good place to 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 wind down, Jim. You've already been, you know, super generous with your time, and you know, uh, Jack and I have selfishly plugged ourselves on our own podcast here. But if folks want to find out more about the good work that that you do at Bianco Research, what's the best way to to follow you or subscribe to your service or, or whatever? Well, yeah, that's the best way to do it is go to BiancoResearch.com, sign up for a full trial, uh, free trial, and then pay me lots of money. So that's kind of the best way. That's kind of the best way to follow my uh, follow my stuff because we we sell stuff, uh, we sell stuff on a on a subscription basis. Uh, we are oriented towards the institutional investor, um, uh, and if you are interested, we would most likely like to hear from you. Um, if not, I do try to stay active on Twitter mainly, LinkedIn a little bit less at Jim Bianco or at Bianco Research, kind of delving out my ideas uh, in the in the real world. I do lots of podcasts and television interviews like this to get my ideas um, out there as well. So yes, BiancoResearch.com, at Bianco Research on Twitter, or just search me on LinkedIn um, at Jim Bianco. And thanks for allowing me to do the plug and send me lots of money because I need to buy a neon Lambo too. Yeah, definitely. And, and a purple one. Um, yes. Jim, th thanks so much for, for coming on. Yeah, people should uh, definitely check out your work. Yo, Jim, I have to say, I think if most other people did as many interviews and was as prolific as you would, I think the general public and the general investing public would get tired of them, but but not you. And that's a, that's a, that's a credit to you. Um, yeah, so thanks, Jim and Mike. Uh, Thank thanks, you. Thanks for making this happen. Yeah, thanks, thanks Mike. Jim. Thanks, we'll Jim. We'll do it again soon. Cheers. Thanks very much.